Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 105. My name is Christopher Luft, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with Tim Fowler, Offensive Security Analyst from Black Hills Information Security. But first, a word from the sponsor of this show, Lima Charlie. My name is Maxim Lamet Brassard, and I'm the founder of Lima Charlie, the company behind the SecOps Cloud Platform. Cybersecurity tools today need to evolve from the one-size-fits-all silos into a modern tool set to adapt to the specific needs that you have. The SecOps Cloud Platform works by providing you with full access to the underlying security tools and infrastructure. Everything's on demand with no minimums, no contracts. It's an approach that's really like AWS has done in IT. We offer a full-featured free tiers, no credit cards, no contracts, nothing. Get on the platform today, deploy an EDR, start ingesting logs, build a product, start an MDR, an MSSP, whatever you can imagine. We're making security flexible so you can build what's possible. You can learn more or get started for free at limacharlie.io. My guest today is Tim Fowler. Tim's unique blend of curiosity, determination, and passion for problem-solving make him stand out in the cybersecurity world. As a frequent speaker on topics ranging from information security to open-source software, Tim's mission is clear, to empower others to take control of their journey and make a positive impact in the world of cybersecurity. Currently, Tim is working as an offensive security analyst for Black Hills Information Security, and he's here today to talk to us about the research he's been doing around cybersecurity in space. And yes, it's as awesome as it sounds. Thank you so much for being with us on the show today, Tim. It's a real honor to have you here. Thanks. I'm really, really excited to be here, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. Before we get into it, I'm always curious about how people got started in technology and how that led to a career in cybersecurity. How did you first get interested in computing, and how did that turn into a career in cybersecurity? Uh, yeah, I've always, I kind of cliche, always been interested in computers and technologies. My dad uh, he taught me how to build computers at a very early age um, and things like that. But it really wasn't until senior year high school, right after high school, um, that I really, it really started to get interested in like how technology could benefit me. Um, in fact, it, one of the, I was thinking about this the other day uh, when the Motorola Razor phone came out. It was such a cool phone, but for me, it was like it was actually an enabler because we had uh, we had Wi-Fi at home. But dad was really conscious and he disabled it at at night so that I wouldn't stay up all hours and stuff like that, like a teenager's prone to do. I mean, what I figured out that using the uh, the Razer phone, I could actually use it as a modem with my laptop. Um, and after 9 p.m., because if for a certain generation will understand different data rates and things like that apply yeah. after 9 p.m., <laughs> I could I could actually surf the Internet for free over the cellular network and stuff. But it really was probably a year or two later that I really started. I got interested in Linux and and kind of open source software, like being able to do things for free. And I had an old Dell Inspiron 8100 laptop that had a PC PCMCI card slot that we could do a wireless card. And we happened to have a, a D-Link, yeah, a D-Link model that was about the only one that had an Atheros chipset in it. And for the Wi-Fi hackers out there, we all know that the Ethereum chipsets were like, that was the gold standard because it allowed you to do um, a lot of the wireless attacks and stuff like that. And so I spent like 
I don't know, six weeks trying to just get wireless working in Linux at this time point, which was just an absolute pain. And it was before they had a lot of drivers. Oh, yeah, and it was stuff. like doing a bunch of stuff with like India's wrapper yeah. and it, like it was just, it was, it yeah. was distro. I, I didn't know Linux, which was the first problem at all. And so trying to like, and I was having to, I wasn't even dual booting. I was literally having to physically swap IDE hard drives. Like I'd boot up an <laughs> XP, do some research, write it all down or print it out, swap the IDE hard drive <laughs> over to, to, to my Linux. And it like, it was crazy, but yeah. Long story short, I got started uh, really look, focusing on wireless uh, hacking um, and stuff. And then virtual, I got introduced to virtualization while I was working for a mom and pop IT shop. And that was like, that was the thing that set, set me off because my entire career, I've kind of built it on the premise of build it, break it and learn. And I didn't want to go to jail. And this virtualization capability gave me the ability to like build and test these things and play with these things in conjunction with the Wi-Fi. I was like, now I have a home lab that like I can do this stuff. And I, I was already working in uh, IT for uh, as like residential IT and stuff. So I was kind of on the fringe of it. And then I left that and moved into the corporate, actually automotive manufacturing as an IT administrator. And security was not, we, we had to keep the lights on. Like, and that was a struggle. And so I like, I just, I kind of started like finding the deficiencies going like, Hey, can we do this better? Can we figure this out? And just kind of using that iterative mindset and process that it, that really took off, ended up working for an open source router software company, building VPN routers and firmwares and stuff like that. And it, that combined the wireless that combined, you know, all of the general security stuff as well as some hardware. And from there, it just, it took off Took off. Yeah. No, very cool. And I, I think I don't want to play the old guy card, but I don't think people can appreciate how hard Linux was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Like you were saying, like just to get like a wireless card working often meant like reading doc and trying to load things that weren't spec for it and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I, I have, I have got bad memories and nightmares of trying. Like, I, I mean, I, cause I think I started, I think the first, the first thing I did was like Fedora Core 4. I think is what I was trying. And that was a disaster, uh, at least from, from the wireless perspective. But it had, uh, I, I can't even remember, what was it, Emerald? I think it was Emerald, the like desktop animation software that you could do, like the, the cube oh, yeah. and the multiple, ver <laughs> like, I mean, it looked amazing, but I couldn't do anything other than anim like navigate in this animated yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, stuff. And then eventually, I think it was sixteen uh, uh, 6.10 uh, for Ubuntu. That, that I finally was able to to get enough information and actually get it working reliably. And I remember cracking the, we had a, so we had Wi-Fi at the house, but our backyard neighbor had a web in, uh, protected network. And I was like, I want to see what I can do. And so realized how quickly and how easily in the, so we're talking like 2008, probably time, like even then, like how ridiculously simple it was. I'd, I cracked it, never connected or anything like that. But I was just like, that was that kind of moment of going, this is just way too easy. Like it's yeah. gotta be, it's gotta yeah. be harder than this. Mm -mm. Yeah. It's not. And shout out to Ubuntu for actually making Linux so accessible. I've 
been using that lately for things I'm spinning up at home. And uh, it, it's almost like the early XP experience where it just recognizes all your drivers. It just works. It's- yeah, I like I, I pretty much grew up on, on Ubuntu as far as my Linux career, both Ubuntu server and Ubuntu desktop. I've tried to be agnostic as much as possible in my career. I When I worked in the automotive manufacturer, we were red red hat slash Windows shop and stuff like that. And uh, try to be as agnostic as possible. But it's like, you know, one of the big you know, the, the distro wars as far, or not, sorry, the text editor wars within the Linux community and stuff. It's like, like I, I can use Vim, I can use VI, but my go-to is Nano. And the only reason yeah. for that is not that it's better or anything is like, is at the point in time that I was learning, that's what most of the documentation was written for. Yeah. If you go to these tutorials and, and, and stuff, it was for Nano. And so like, that's, that's just what I, I learned on. And, you know, as I advance my abilities and my capabilities in, in my career, I, I really try to become more as ag- agnostic because, you know, I've gotten, I've managed to root of media boxes that don't have nano on it. Okay. <laughs> you, you know, all right, cool. You have to learn to, to live off the land, but yeah, it's, it Ubuntu is, and there's been ups and downs and stuff with it, but I, I'll go off here and, and, and try other stuff. And I always come back. I'm a sucker. Yeah. 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 All right, so I don't want to get too far off topic. The reason I asked you on the show today is so we could talk about the research you've been doing on cybersecurity in space. Are you ready to dive into that? Better question is, are you ready? <laughs> it, might, it might be drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm excited. I've seen your talk. You're very, very knowledgeable and very passionate, so I'm excited to get into this. Um, so, yeah, like all good stories, I think we should go back and start at the beginning. There's some really interesting history here. I'd love to quickly go over that before getting to present-day concerns. Where does the relationship between technology and space start? Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's really starts at the, at, at, at the beginning of, I mean, really actually it predates, you know, our experiences in space and things like that. Technology always kind of drives the capability of what we're going to do next. But it's, there's a definitely a relationship there because a lot of things uh, from a space perspective have driven technology improvements. And then space has, uh, technology improvements have then rendered space more accessible and things like that. So it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship at times technology makes the way for space. And then in other ways, space makes the way for technology because we can use space to test things. If you look at things, aspects in our lives that, I mean, even down to like some of the, the, the materials, uh, that we, that we encounter in our daily lives, you know, those were developed for, for special applications of space. Teflon. Teflon's a good example and stuff, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, although if, if to, nothing sticks to Teflon, what is, to, how is Teflon sticking to the pan? I still don't understand the physics of that, <laughs> but yeah. And so it, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing, but, f- but for the most part, I would say that te- the, the relationship is, is, uh, space is reliant on the evolution of technology. And we see that more and more in modern times, but it also space does allow us to flip that on its head is once we achieve that capability in space, what can we make this technology do for the future? So, yeah, I guess what I was trying to get at, like we, we see in World War II, Alan Turing, Bletchley Park, they developed the first digital computer to crack the Enigma codes. Post-World War II, we see the beginning of something called the Cold War. Uh, and then there's October 4th, 1957. What what does that date mean to us? Yeah. So so that so so that date uh for people that aren't familiar with space it it's it's also something we've heard about. It was that was the 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 USSR launched uh, the first artificial satellite into uh low earth orbit. We know it is Sputnik 1 
And that was that was the uh, kind of a glass shattering moment for the world because we already had uh, coming out of World War II, we had things like the the German V two rocket that had already technically flown in space, uh, had reached an altitude of sixty two miles, which is basically the the uh, the Karman line, which kind of equates us to space. But as far as the first artificial satellite to orbit Earth to transmit back to Earth so that that signal could be received by ham radio operators all over the world. That was the moment that that was the moment that we entered the space race. The the USSR, you know, they got the first shot off. They got the first shot and the second shot off, actually, in the in, in the space race. Um, and it really launched us specifically like in the United States, like head on into this to the, this, uh, the space race, the what I call space race 1.0, because we've really we've that kind of ended. And then we, we morphed into it to another one later. But. The Sputnik in, uh, launching was it, it reverberated around the world in a way that not too many things have. From a scientific perspective, the everybody was just amazed. Like they did it. Like the United States was working on it. They just beat us to it. And so the unit, you know, United States saying so was kind of like like patting them on the back, kind of good job. And go from a political perspective terrified right because in the background there was also this idea of communism versus democracy is the which is the better way to build your society and if the communists are sending people to space and the democracy is not which one's better yeah absolutely i mean absolutely because like uh if you if uh the 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 recent movie oppenheimer it kind of highlights some of the tensions between um, you know, democracy and and uh, communism and things like that. So that's you're talking about in the 1940s and in, into the 50s. So we're you know we're talking about approximately you know a decade or so later from that. And it has it hasn't gotten any better. It's it's manifested itself and it started to really grow. There's but becoming more decisive. But there's a, a one because one of the fears was you know it, with okay whatever the rocket that puts Sputnik in orbit. What if it was a warhead? And not Sputnik. Like, it's this thing. There's a, one of my favorite, like, kind of guilty pleasure movies is October Sky, the Homer Hickam story. And there's a scene in that movie where they're in Colwood, West Virginia. Um, and they're looking up in, at supposedly seeing Sputnik and they're listening to it on the radio. And one of the characters uh, says, like, they're going to, you know, the Russians are going to drop a bomb on us or something like that. And and the another character goes, well, it'd be a waste of a perfectly good bomb, uh, you know, on Coldwood, <laughs> West Virginia, and stuff like that. Yeah. But like that was the tensions. It's like so scientifically, this is amazing. Politically um, and societal, it created a lot of unease. Uh, I mean, a perfect kind of analogy to that was happened just last week with this national security threat that came out, where it's you know some bits and pieces of information where there's just like all of a sudden, you know, hey, Russia may or may not have this new capability that could potentially disable our satellite communications and stuff. It's like, Hey, this is, this is some of those tensions are are still prevalent today, but yeah, Sputnik, Sputnik started it all. Yeah. Which then obviously kicked off the U S's determination to go to the moon. Kennedy's speech 11 years later, we're on the moon. Yeah. And we want like, I mean, definitively, if you plant your flag on a celestial body, (laughs) you win the space race. Um, And it, but it, but that, I mean, as, as Neil Armstrong said, you know, that you, you know, one small small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It was a historic, historic thing for just all of humanity. Forget the Cold War, forget all of that other stuff. It was, it was absolutely, I mean, we just, 
the United, the, a, a U.S.-based company just put a lunar lander on the surface of the moon yesterday for yes. the first time in 52 years. Since like, 1972, right? Yeah, it's like it's yeah. like the, 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 the genesis of all this stuff. It's just, it's just absolutely incredible. But along with it becomes, there's, there's been some, I don't want to call it dirty little secrets, but there's just because it was so inaccessible for us for so long like we don't really understand the ramifications of what's actually possible in terms of space systems and being able to interact with it but yeah it all started it all started Back with then. sputnik yeah and really ramped up into really up until kind of 81 probably with the space shuttle launch we kind of shifted into a, a more just scientific uh, approach in, uh, into space and stuff yeah there's still defense uh capable satellites and things going up so, you know we came we came through star wars the sdi initiatives and stuff and like that and what may or may not have actually existed or came out of that and who's to say but yeah it's it's we, we've seen a just a growth in in the reach to get to space and to understand space and be able to operate in space not just from the united states or uh, or russia but if you look at india japan most of the european countries under under the ESA, the European Space Agency. It's just been incredible. Yeah. And it, so one of the next questions I had was, you know, you talked about space uh, programs 1.0. And then, yeah, in 1981 was the launch of the Space Shuttle Program, which has come and gone since. Is that like a middle period between the Cold War and what we have now with like self-landing rockets? Or is that really the beginning of the the phase we're in now? It's it, it, maybe both a little bit um like i said it's obviously there was some huge you know militaristic endeavors and stuff during the space shuttle um things we also had things like the hubble space telescope and and things and so the, the it was a little bit of the as you said this kind of middle ground but as far as like the when i when i mentioned the space race 1.0 it definitely uh where we're at now i classify space 2.0 and it, it started in my opinion somewhere probably right around 2000 so from 72 to to 2000 is is definitely pretty much you basically take the 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 shuttle error and that was pretty much you know we do have the international space station that that has obviously produced a ton of amazing science and and, and research and stuff for us during that period but the 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 modern space race, in my opinion, and I don't, is is really comes down to the democratization of space. If you look at the early history, it was the United States and it was Russia. But more specifically, it was the governments of the United States and Russia. It wasn't individuals. You, you had to be an Asian state actor to even consider yeah, had, yeah, thinking about the, it. The, yeah. the budgets were too high. The 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 knowledge was too specific for just general you know it, there was this this pipeline from academia and education systems directly into these specialized projects and programs and things like that but as the internet became a thing as a technology evolved as things cost of things changed we started to see this paradigm shift and if you i mean if you look at the history i mean I, I saw a stat yesterday or a couple of days ago where SpaceX in 2023 accounted for over 50% of the launches into space last year. And that's significant because SpaceX is a private company. Yeah. And I, I think during your talk, I heard you quote that like before the U.S. would do maybe like four launches a year and now SpaceX is doing like multiple a week. Four a week? <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, it's it's insane. Yeah. I mean, I, I think on, on average there's about four space shuttle launches a year give or take and stuff. And 
of course, there was some other, there were still some other like rocket based programs going on simultaneously and stuff. Obviously, special primarily focusing on manned space flight and things like that. But yeah, it's, 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 you know, just the, the frequency and the number uh, of what uh, SpaceX and, and Blue Origin and there's other players in, in, in Europe and stuff like that. I mean, if you even look at like, like the big, the big three in technology as far as like cloud services, okay, Google, Microsoft, and, and um, AWS or Amazon, they all have like space programs now. And it's like, it's, it's so big. And one of the things that, that I talk about, I'm actually doing a webcast next week for BHS on this is like talking about the revolution of software defined radio and the, the role it plays in space systems because now for the first time people like you and me can go buy some cost-effective commodity hardware and we can start tuning in and start manipulating and decoding and these these signals for these systems that used to just sit there completely obscure because nobody could afford to listen to them and that paradigm has gone and so the democratization of space the, the privatization if you will a, a push away from centralized governments and nation states has really put us into that 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 space race 2.0 where it's it's uh, unfortunately for better or worse it's the billionaires game now um you know <laughs> i won't say anything about jeff bezos's rocket i i i i don't have an opinion <laughs> I, I mean well i do have an opinion but nobody's paying paying me to share it yet so Something we touched on when we spoke the other day that I found interesting and, and worth mentioning is that there's a difference in mentality in the way these things were built because the people working on them are very academic and scientific in the way that they think. You know, they don't have the same kind of mindset, I think, as people working in security, which has resulted in a lot of this stuff being built without security as a primary consideration. Can you kind of delve into that and help our listeners understand? Yeah. So to, 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 and I, I want to give a hundred percent like, credit to to all the people that were working in aerospace in any capacity or whatsoever you guys are geniuses you're you're brilliant and the way your minds work are are just absolutely amazing because in most cases what we're talking about is people that are at the top of their field uh designing these systems designing doing the math doing like uh, all the the calculations and the and the down the to structure the design yeah i mean down to understanding you know the space is Space is the harshest environment that we can operate in. We can't effectively simulate it accurately here on Earth. It is it is just absolutely harsh. The the constraints that you have to deal with, the fact that, you know, it costs so much money to launch a, a single kilogram up into low Earth orbit. You have to figure out a way to get everything as small as possible, as dense as possible, accounting for every like milliamp of power consumption for accounting for just you know all of these different little variables that in substitute we like we don't ever think about it like it's just it's just wires and and machines and things like that it's like you know i mean just even like one of the the constraints is you can't turn it off and on again with a button (laughs) yeah like you can't just oh yeah well if have you you know call somebody drive drive you know get on a rocket get or get launch certified <laughs> go to training get on a rocket fly up you know go create a transfer uh, orbit to get in synchronization with that satellite and then push the butt it's not yeah it's not going to work and so they operating within the constraints of space because it causes people to become hyper hyper focused and one of the problems with hyper focus in in all aspects is in most cases you solve the problem that you're trying to accomplish and you solve it very well 
is the solution only solving that problem? And I'll give you a case, an example, and I'm, I'm going to talk bad about myself here for a second. Um, uh, so la- last year I was developing a CubeSat lab to for Wadwas Hacking Fest uh, that people could come and play with some of this technology and, and kind of get go hands-on a little bit. And I ran into an issue th- that is common with radio-based communication, and that's the issue of like loss, packet loss, signal loss or anything like that, or getting things out of sequence and things. And so I knew that I needed to have an ability to have the satellite retransmit data, but only specific data that was lost. And so I wrote this retransmission routine. I tested it out. It worked exactly how I wanted it to. It did exactly what I needed it to. It had it like it it checked all the boxes. Perfect. Two days later, I'm laying in bed. It's like 2.30 in the morning. And I wake up and I'm chuckling to myself. And unfortunately, I wake my wife up and she goes, why are you laughing? And I go, I just coded a remote code execution vulnerability in my retransmission <laughs> routine on my satellite. Yeah. And she's like, that's nice, honey. Go back to sleep. And sure enough, I got up the next morning. I jumped on my computer. I did what logically made sense to me. And sure enough, I got code execution on my satellite over an RF link. And then I was like, wait a second. This is a great learning opportunity. For, it is a reminder for myself because my code did exactly what I told it to do. It did exactly what I needed it to do. The problem is it didn't only do what I needed it to do. I hadn't taken, I did, didn't, didn't do the best practices of, of, of for cybersecurity and stuff. And I had actually coded a vulnerability in, in the system. And it's like, that's how incredibly difficult this is. So you take everything, all the constraints that you're working power budgets and size and mass and, you know, orbitals like, Hey, by the way, guess what? You got all that nice solar panels you've got. Yeah. Cool. They're only in sunlight for half an orbit. Yeah. It's like, did you, Take into account. Did you think about that? that? Yeah. (laughs) Did you think about yeah your power budget's now cut in half and stuff like that? Uh, Like all these things. And oh, by the way, you've got to make sure everything operates and under every condition perfectly because I can't. In some cases, I can't just be like, oh yeah, let's go fix that. Let's push a patch. May not be possible. So that makes sense when we talk about like security not being a first tier consideration when building this stuff because we're so focused on the environment. We come from this academic background. It's been inaccessible to the wider population for a long time because of cost constraints. But when do we start to see this change? I think you talked about a a hack on a U.S. Navy satellite that took place at some point. Oh, yeah. So I I think back 2009 in Brazil. This, some some intrepid hackers were were arrested and, and charged with uh, commandeering a, a navy satellite. I, the name has left me. Um, FLT right him, Sat Eight. In my yeah, notes. that's it. Um, and they were basically using it to rebroadcast. There is pirate radio of the <laughs> ultimate form. Uh, they were using it for, uh, I think, in conjunction with like CBEs and stuff for being able to do stuff. But like even more recent. So tomorrow will be the two year anniversary of a genuinely terrifying slash epic attack on a satellite operator via sat and i'm sure they're not celebrating uh, the anniversary and stuff uh, but in, in in all seriousness kudos to them and stuff like that but on the eve of the invasion of ukraine where i don't not we're not gonna get political here but this, this just the timeline of what it there was a two-pronged attack 
conducted against the uh, the K eight satellite portion of the Viasat overall uh, infrastructure network that happened to be uh, servicing the Ukraine and the surrounding areas. And in approximately an hour or so, 45,000-ish modem terminals went offline due to which obviously uh, for the for Viasat, this is providing communications, internet services and things like that. So you've got 45,000 plus customers that are all of a sudden in the dark in terms of, of communications and stuff. And it was very much a, uh, I mean, it's, it's, that's going to be the case study for years and years and years to come from people to learn from and things like that. But like, that's, it was just two years ago that happened. And so like we've, there's been this kind of history uh, of these things, you know, events taking place in space. We were talking about Stuxnet the other day when we were were first chatting about how it's, there's, there's, some speculation and, and nobody wants to come on record and go, this is exactly what happened for the most part from what I can tell. But effectively the, the general gist is that the a Asian country, um, cause you're going to, I don't want to play any politics or anything like that. <laughs> infected managed to infect a uh, Indian television stations control center for their satellite through a, through one of their technicians. And this satellite happened to be, running or had the Siemens PLC that was vulnerable to Stuxnet running on it. And this Stuxnet made its way into the ground station network and was able to be propagated to the satellite, uh, rendering it completely, completely useless. And so, you know, this is, this was 2010. So, you know, with malware in space, it's a thing, um, with, you know, which everybody kind of thinks about and stuff. And so that, that kind of transition, it's happening now. It's and it's, but it's going to be a slow. It's going to be a slow process because it's still like <laughs> space is hard, and it's it's the. I don't think too many organizations are going to be as proactive as I would like them to be. You know, put the put the hacker hat on and cybersecurity. Yeah, let's go do this this stuff. They're they're going to drag their feet as much as possible, um, as they can. Until they're forced to do it, either through you know uh, a regular regulatory bodies, international or, or or local, you know countries and stuff like that, or until things just go really, really. I mean, Viasat, unfortunate for them, but it was one of the better things to happen to the 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 greater uh, kind of space system community and stuff because Viasat they did a fantastic job of, uh, you know, incident response and, and triaging and, and, and under, trying to learn and understand what was going on. But w- once they did that, then they patched some holes and the, this entity found some new ones and went after those. And it's like this, so it's this multi-week kind of thing. But then they started sharing with their other partners and their other providers, like, hey, you guys may be vulnerable to this, th- these types of attacks and things like that to try to, to try to mitigate uh, against those and stuff. And then you, I mean, you look at the proliferation of, of Starlink and then, uh, you know, a, uh, Amazon's Kuiper, uh, Project Kuiper, that's, you know, uh, they put their first uh, couple of prototype satellites up in the end of 2023. You know, like, what's our lives are going to be more so driven by satellites than they already are. So it's important that us as cybersecurity professionals start taking a look at it um, and trying to meet the space people kind of in the middle. Because there's not going to be, there's not a ton of space cybersecurity experts. There are some, and they're really amazing people. And there's really not a lot of cybersecurity space experts coming from the other side. It's like, it's going to sure. be, it's going to have to be yeah. a collaboration uh, on, on both of our parts. So, yeah, I think we've established like the history of where we got to where we are. 
and that, yeah, it's a thing. There's a tax happening. The potential for a tax is going to grow exponentially as our presence goes into space. What's at stake here? You know, you, you mentioned some stuff in Ukraine already, but like what, what kind of things can happen in space that are going to affect my day-to-day life? Why, why would I care if a satellite goes down? Yeah, so um, it's a lot of it's going to depend on you know. Is it, let me let me paint some broad pictures here. First of all, if I ask you to drive to my house, you're going to be dependent on GPS to get you here because you're it's just everything. So that the GPS system is one of those kind of easy ones to get at. Um, but there's a sub element that I love talking about with the GPS systems that actually impacts your day to day life more than most people ever realize is one of the products of GPS is highly accurate and precise timing. And GPS provides that for us for time synchronization purposes. And our critical infrastructure, our electrical grids, they require these type of time infrastructures, your financial networks, your credit card, MasterCard, Visa, whatever, they require this highly accurate and precise time for synchronization of transactions or the actual networks will can can suffer they if they get too far. I mean, there's regulations that say they have to stay within 50 to 100 milliseconds or microseconds of, of, of synchronization and stuff. And there's default policies. If, if there's too large of a, a, a drift, automatic decline. Imagine just every transaction getting behind, not because there's something going on with the network, it's just because the time is not there. And so, you know, in the electrical system, a lot of our critical infrastructure is is tied into this, but even more so, you know, just day in, day out communications. If you if you happen to have like an iPhone, I think it's starting with iPhone 15, they in like the, the E911 system and stuff, there's, there's a thing you can go in there and it actually has a satellite transmitter or transceiver in there um that you can make emergency phone calls over i for maybe it's probably i think it's the global star network i believe like that's 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 built into to the device that we carry in our hands and stuff and so it's 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 pervasive like to to get a, a percentage of your traffic and communications and transactions that traverse a satellite like it's is it's going to be pretty difficult to pay you know it could be 20 percent, it could be 10 percent, depending on where you're at and the type of stuff you do but the the reality is we have a fundamental requirement um and that's not even looking at the defense applications um and militaristic and, and things like that early warning detection systems um and that's why the 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 national uh, security threat situation that came out last week was it it definitely piqued my you know my radar because um, I'm like oh you know like the ability to knock out strategically disable specific capabilities of us in in space would would have lasting and in, in, in catastrophic effects. All right, so yeah, very important thing for us to protect. Very important for it to keep running. So when we're talking about space infrastructure, we're mostly talking about satellites. What are the primary components that make up a satellite system? Yeah. So just for for most part, when we we're, when I'm talking about space systems, I am talking about satellites because satellite really encompasses any artificial or natural body that is orbiting uh, a celestial body. Um, so for instance, we the International Space Station. It's a really big satellite. While in orbit, the uh, space shuttle was a satellite and stuff. So I, I kind of use use that that the satellite is the the generic kind of catch all terms. But there are fundamentally, there's pinning on your application if you're not looking at uh, supporting human life, 
because there's an entire different ecosystem of, of systems and stuff. You have on your traditional kind of satellite platform, regardless of size, you're going to have components uh, such as, you, I mean, first and foremost, you're going to have your, com- uh, your communication systems, your comms. Um, this can be a combination of radio, RF communications, or it can also be optical, um, which is something that I absolutely am, am obsessed with and kind of playing with and hoping to have some demonstrations here soon. And moving up from there, you have your computer data handling system with your onboard computer. This is your brains. This is the thing that's basically making all of the decisions and producing all of the, or not necessarily producing all the information, but organizing all the information so that it can be sent back to the ground for analysis and things like that. You have uh, things called like uh, ADCS, not Active Directory Certificate Services, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, but Attitude Determination and Control Systems. This is how how you maneuver a satellite in terms of relative orientation. You have uh, you have propulsion systems. You have electrical power systems, which are the I mean that's the backbone. If if your EPS fails, you're done. Doesn't matter. It's pretty much no recovery. And then you also have your payloads, and your payloads are typically isolated or considered separate from the actual you know core of the satellite and stuff. And that can be your op, you know depending on what your mission is, Earth observation, whether it's, you know, weather, climate, agricultural, things like that. Imagery um, is, is obviously a, a very significant one. Communication. So like in the, in the case of like Viasat or Sat, uh, Starlink, you know, their, their payload is, is a, a secondary communication system providing broadband internet access to their users and things like that. There's a lot of intricacies as you kind of get down into that. Like in, in ADCS, you've got like reaction control systems and you got magnet torquers and just a bunch of other little kind of components for being able to manipulate the, the satellites and stuff like that. But those are, those are pretty much the core components that you're going to find in every, 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 every space system, at least from the satellite side. Yeah. And I think most of the people listening can understand technical systems broken down into subsystems and the points where they interact with each other. We all kind of can grok that easily. One of the things that I think is unique in this is the constraints, because like you'd said, space is this very harsh environment. We can't go up and hit the power reset button. So I know we have limited time. I don't want to go down the wrong rabbit hole for too long. But like, can we just talk about like some of the unique constraints we see yeah. when talking yeah. so, about space systems? So, so real, real quick, obviously power. And you are limited in how much power, whether it's chemical, in most cases, it's chemical power that you're going to take with you in the form of batteries or whatever like that. You're, you're physically limited to the, the, the amount that you can put in by your launch provider and how much payload can they take and how much money can you afford to actually to launch this stuff. And so there's a, there's a, there's a cap of like, I can't launch more than this. Uh, in terms of, of power. And so then I have to have the ability to regenerate that power so that I can stay operational. So that means you have a, uh, a requirement of to for, for power generation, which is typically going to be solar panels, um, unless you're doing some kind of like RTG. It's basically thermonuclear and generating power itself. So now you've got to make sure that you have enough solar power to be able to regen- or to maintain the EPS status. But as we mentioned, it's like you're your solar panels are only going to work half the time and only one axis of your satellite is going to be directly facing the sun at any given time. So like in the, the ones that I built for the lab, I have six axes of solar panels and I was like, Oh, I was like, you started multiplying my, my, and then I was like, Oh, it's not, (laughs) it's not that 
because you're going to have one that's in direct sunlight. You're going to have two that's going to be able to pick up some reflections from the atmosphere. Of the sun, and then you're going to have the other three that are going to be complete darkness, mm-hmm. um, doing nothing. Um, and so, you know, just figuring out, it's like, okay, I've got so much power. I can only generate power for half of my orbit. What is the condition? What is what is the state my satellite needs to be in during that orbit? Because I don't need to, I, I definitely don't want to be transmitting a lot of on when I, I'm not able to regenerate power and stuff. So just the sequence of events is a huge constraint. Thermals, low Earth orbit between, you know, 400 and 2000 kilometers above Earth, you will have upwards of a four to 500 degree temperature swing every orbit. So, you know, you're thinking, let's say 93 minutes uh, to, for, for a complete orbit going from, you know, 200 degrees or negative 200 <laughs> degrees Celsius to 200 degrees uh, Celsius on the sun. And that's happening every 46 and a half minutes. That's crazy. You've got to design a system that heats up components and then cools them down and do that real. I mean, these are, it's just stuff that we don't know. Has, has anybody tried a Stirling engine in space? I feel like there's some, some thermal properties there that could be turned into power, but. I'm I'm not a physicist. I, I'm not either. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm not either. <laughs> I, I didn't and I, I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, so I, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. But it's, just it, you know, there's there's a big gradient there. I feel like yes. there might be something there. It, it's uh, it's absolute. Uh, you know, and different different orbits have different requirements and things like that, and constraints and stuff. You know, if you're in low Earth orbit, you have much. You don't necessarily have to have as. Uh, as powerful radios and things like that. Whereas if you're in middle, uh, a medium earth orbit or a heo or a geo orbit or something, you've got to have extremely powerful radios and transmitters and components, which means you now have to have a beefier PS, which means the entire thing's bigger, which means the entire project's going to cost millions and millions and millions of dollars more. And it just, it cascades from there. And that's not even talking about like deep space probing and things like that. So like in all of this, you've talked about the democratization of space, which is kind of where we are, where we're seeing all these launches, we're seeing uh, corporations and civilians even getting satellites up into space. During your talk, you mentioned the Docker container of space, which is these cube satellites. Do you want to briefly tell us about what these are? Yeah, so I, I was I was doing a presentation very similar to the one you watched at Besides St. Louis. And on stage, like it just came, like I was just talking about these the like CubeSats and what they have meant. So to give you a little background, the CubeSats are uh, it's classified as a Pico satellite. They are t- typically in the form factor of a ten by ten by ten cube, weighing less than one point three three kilograms. There's actually a specification for this that came out of Cal Poly. The first edition was in nineteen ninety nine, which aligns with that kind of space race two 99 to 2000 transition because this is this is very pivotal but effectively what cubesats have allowed us to do it's kind of been multifaceted because they're very small they, they the cost has gone down significantly as far as being the, how much it costs to launch one of these and stuff but also what these launch providers had figured out um 20 or so years ago it's like hey i've got a customer that they're paying us 250 million dollars to launch this satellite on this rocket. This rocket has, let's say, 20 tons of capacity. I'm just making these numbers up. And their satellite weighs 15 tons. Well, they're paying for the entire 20-ton capacity payload. What the launch providers goes like, hey, what if we like figured out a way that we could launch like some smaller payloads to make up that 5,000 kilogram or ton mass that we're missing 
and offset some of the launch costs and stuff like that. And we have ride sharing for satellites. It's, it's Uber for space. And and that's pretty much how. And so as that became a thing, it needed we needed to be able to standardize on form factors and stuff like that. And that's really where the CubeSats came from. And they're measured in units, like uh, if you think of it like rack units, so like a 1U, a 2U, a 3U. 2 and 3Us tend to be the most common. But I think technically it goes up to like 12 uh, is the largest that, that has been launched and stuff. But it just it basically gave us a platform that we could fill the gaps in terms of launch. Um, now there's entire companies like Rocket Labs that all they do is small, like nano satellite launches and stuff and CubeSats and stuff. Entire missions dedicated to just getting as many satellites as possible into orbit. And with this, it gave us the ability to start really testing new technologies, new scientific equipment and stuff like that in these small, affordable tests where we're not investing the hundreds of millions of dollars and then it we turn out it, it fails. Yeah. And so we were able to, to to push this stuff down to like universities and research institutions and, co- and, and commercial companies to leverage this, these new form factors and these capabilities. So it's like, hey, we can build entire businesses and and things like that, new new technologies by leveraging these CubeSats. And they're, if you want to think about it, like compared to a monolithic satellite, you know, that you would envision, it's the CubeSats like a Docker container. It's the, it's the bare minimum you need to run. It's, it, it, you know, it has all those components and stuff, but you can accomplish some of these big monolithic tasks by deploying multiple of them and clusters. And, and, you know, I mean, if you Kubernetes is a Kubernetes has actually <laughs> flown in space. It is actually so. There's a thing called K3s, which is a stripped down version. It's 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 got space heritage and stuff like that. So the actual application of containers in space is a legitimate thing. But looking at it from that in the same way that Docker containers kind of revolutionized, even from a virtual machine perspective, CubeSats have done the same thing. Amazing, yeah, and that's really the reason like why things like Starlink are possible, right? Because they're putting like eight thousand satellites up in orbit to create a network so we can all have high-speed internet anywhere on the world yeah, yeah and and yeah absolutely and what because what you figure the, the option is the or the alternative is you have to launch multiple satellites into geosynchronous orbit um strategically across the, the 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 world and that is extremely expensive they are extremely big satellites and stuff and if one of them fails you're done yeah um, so you don't get to really have this kind of iterative process and stuff where Starlink operating in the low Earth orbit, I think their goal is something like 40,000 satellites or something uh, over, uh, overall, and, and, you know, and stuff. It's like, hey, we can afford to lose a thousand satellites and we're still OK. Yeah. And it also so that allows for an iterative design. I mean, I, the, the number of hardware revisions that are flying in Starlink's uh, constellation, I, I like I have no idea what it is, but I'm. It's, I would guess, given the sheer more numbers, than one. it's probably like, it's, yeah, it's, it's upwards of 20, yeah. probably yeah. with just the way they iterate and stuff. And so it, that, you know, that's one of those things. It's like, if, we can save cost instead of spending $200 million, we spend $2 million. Well, we could do that a hundred times yeah. and still ultimately probably come out better. And so, but that's also leads to one of, you know, low earth orbit is going to begin, it's already getting crowded. But it's going to get even worse, and space debris is going to be a big issue that they're, you know, we're actively trying to mitigate and and things like that. But yeah, yeah, I, I've often wondered about that too, and I I know we're burning through time here, but like, 
you know, one satellite mouse functions, ping pongs off another one, and like how long before the whole thing just gets wrecked by like... I, there there is a there is a there's an actual term for that and it's and it's just something it starts with a K, I believe, effect. Anyway, it's basically that it's it's the the chain reaction of that one you know one satellite is is hit by space debris it is it becomes more space debris <laughs> many pieces of space debris and and then it it just it's the it's, it's the similar uh chain reaction as as a nuclear explosion with with a sing, you know the single splitting of an atom that produces new uh spare neutrons that then go and split other atoms and and just it cascades and that's that's a that's a big actual concern that's why um at least with NASA and things like that if we if we launched a, let's say we wanted to launch a, a satellite for advertisement purposes or or whatever for for promotion we in part of the certification processes and things like that we would have to have a 10 year deorbit plan and contingency to make sure that we can that that our our satellite won't just be floating around there forever um and that it will be able to burn up so that it doesn't pose a risk to to other other entities operating in space oh super interesting yeah and if if anybody caught that uh, me and Tim before the show were talking about how we can take some of the marketing budget from our companies and actually launch our own satellites because it turns out it's much cheaper to launch a satellite in space than to sponsor an F1 team and I think one's a lot cooler than the other so <laughs> agreed <laughs> yeah yeah again I know we're getting getting on in time here but uh, you know during your talk you referenced the work being done by Johannes Wilbold I think a German PhD student on a talk he gave at Blackout and we've got all these CubeSats up in space, and it turns out they're not very secure. So this is a bit of a call to arms moment. Uh, can you tell us about this? Yeah, so so Johannes did a, uh, a presentation of Black Hat. It's actually was just uh, published on the Black Hat YouTube channel a couple of weeks ago. I think it's entitled Houston, We Have a Problem, which is uh, very <laughs> apropos. Yeah. And, and effectively what he, he talks about is he, he looked at uh, so, some various systems and looked at it from a from a vulnerability perspective, and long story short, it's very rudimentary problems. Um, most of them geared in, in in software development, things like insecure mem, uh, mem copies, um, uh, leading to buffer overflows that allowed them to, in a, in a simulated satellite, take over the satellite and lock out the ground station. Um, with no hopes of them ever re- regaining access or control of that satellite. Very basic, like, <laughs> almost CTF, like, type stuff that we would see is really present. And it goes back to that hyper-focus on they're just trying to get something to do the mission and and not having the knowledge and the foresight and, and understanding that, hey, there may, like, it may do that, but it may do something else. Encryption isn't widely used in space systems or in at the level that you would expect it to be. And that's where that's, there's legitimate reasons for that. Not just be like, oh, they don't want to do that. No, it's, I mean. Power consumption, even. You would think, and that's where my mind went. And I love that everybody says that. No, that's not the actual, like, easiest, like, the the biggest reason is key management. More specifically, key management in a highly irradiated environment. If you have a bit flip occur because of ionizing radiation, you lose your key if it hit in that right spot. It's done. Your communication. So you have to have multiple fallback methods, potentially rolling keys, keys in different like duplicates and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, you have to fall back to open communication at some point in time or you're going to lose control of your satellite. 
It's, it's so it, it's actually physics. Physics is one yeah. of the reasons <laughs> that that people don't encrypt. I noticed we're at time. Are you good to keep going, or oh, I'm should good. we wrap I'm it good. up here? Okay, awesome, awesome. This is great. Yeah, I, this is gonna be a long one for our listeners, but I think everybody will appreciate it. Yeah. So there's problems. We understand why there's problems. We understand why this is important. Now we're talking about the different systems and the classifications of threats that there are. So you kind of broke it down into three main ones, I think. And let's just talk about like ground station threats. Where are we vulnerable there? So so quickly to understand in, in, in space segment or space systems, there's you know, three primary segments, the ground, the space and the user segment. In the ground segment, that's just really what it sounds like. It's the terrestrial segment of it. It is it is the most vulnerable by a huge, huge stretch. Um, and the reason why is we have physical locations that are accessible compared to the space <laughs> space segment. You have people that are interacting with these systems. You have terrestrial networking, internet, and things like that. Um, in fact, the Viasat part of one of the one uh, prongs of that attack is they were able to compromise credentials on a VPN that allowed them to get access into the, into the ground st- uh, control uh, networks and things like that. So every, every cybersecurity, every physical threat, every risk or whatever you want to look at that your organization has that any other organization, those are present. Now the ramifications of that in some cases may be significantly higher and stuff, but like they're not immune to that. One of the things that's happening is we're seeing a big shift into cloud-based ground station controls and things like that. Uh, as I mentioned, Azure, AWS, or Microsoft, Amazon, and Google all have what's called ground station as a service, where you plug in your stuff into their infrastructure and uh, network of antennas and stuff like that. So now you don't have to have these physical locations, and you get to utilize the the distributed nature of their network and uh, antenna, so you can have more round-the-clock communication and stuff. But now your entire cloud vector, like. I uh, identity access management and all of that stuff that we see all the time, that's now your new attack vector. And so imagine breaching a secretary's email account in, in O365 and through some misconfigurations, actually eventually pivoting to an EC2 instance or, or into the console being able to ma- manipulate like Lambda functions are actually communicating and executing code on the satellite. Like it is absolutely the most critical because it's the most accessible is is really the accessibility does impact the the vulnerable state of it if you will yeah yeah and that's wild and you know, i think if anything though that's the thing we're most used to protecting like that sounds just like a regular infrastructure for a company yeah yeah it is but that's it's i mean understanding because that's that's where you know, I mean, that's that's where the communications originate from. That's where the control and the command and the telemetry and things like that. That's where the encryption keys are sitting. That's for that encrypted link that they're, they're, that they are utilizing and stuff. Like if I can, you know, insider threat um, is is a big issue. You know, are a big risk within ground stations and st- and stuff like that. So it's it's just take your entire security uh, cybersecurity playbook of vulnerabilities and stuff and just throw them and they're there. They're they're present. But the possible ramifications are times 10. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's the ground systems. And then we're talking about comlink threats. What kind of attacks are these systems vulnerable to? So primarily they're going to be vulnerable to your, your standard RF kind of spoofing, re- replaying, and jamming attacks. 
Um, spoofing and replaying can pretty much be mitigated by the use of encryption as well as auth- uh, authentication, which are, you know, is going to be more at the, at the actual packet level things, but they are. Jamming is a big one because it's just, you know, whoever has a bigger radio wins kind of thing. And that's both on, on both sides, the ground side and the, the, the segment side. But it's really the lack of uh, lack of encryption and authorization within the protocols that are being used that, that allow us to uh, have, historically have allowed us to be able to listen to these signals, decode them, understand what's going on. And that's, you know, we're, we're seeing a, a shift in, in the right direction for that. Perfect example, 2019, uh, some gentlemen in France were able to decode the stage two, the Falcon 9 stage two locks camera, the, the liquid oxygen tank camera feed on their own. And then like a couple of weeks later, Space League encrypted it. Um, like they published, it's like, hey, we did that. And it's just a live video feed and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Within the next couple of launches, uh, SpaceX had encrypted it because it's like, yeah, we probably don't want people like it was somebody was like, oh, nobody's going to do this. Somebody did it. They fixed it. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because reading about these or, or watching the, you talk about these in your talk, it reminded me a lot. I, I did an interview a couple of weeks ago with a guy named Leonard Koopman who makes a Wi-Fi defensive product called enzyme and these seem a lot like just regular wi-fi attacks yeah yeah it's 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 the exact same in fact most of your attacks that you can uh that that we can think of in terms of cybersecurity, it's the name is different but the technique and the approach the approach is very similar and so the wi-fi is 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 a great analogy from that and and being able you know an open network being able to eavesdrop on the on the uh, on the uh, on the packets of traffic, if you know a lot of a lot of larger deployments and stuff are using standardized protocols that are pretty well known, so it's just a matter of being able to demodulate those, and then bam, you've got you're able to start to see in the data. And then it comes down to what are your secondary and tertiary controls to keep somebody from doing a replay attack either on on either end on the uh, towards a ground station or towards a satellite, you know, or and just being able to you know send bad data, corrupted data. It's there's it's yeah, it's 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 a really expensive Wi-Fi system. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the last system we're going to talk about is the space threats and challenges, which I think is probably the the one that's more unique than the stuff we see on the ground here. Yeah. So these are um, there's a couple of things. So we already talked about space debris as being one. That's it. That'd be a kind of a physical threat. There is technically a physical threat of like interception, like somebody you know uh, at nation state launching. Uh, not even that, like physical human inter- interception. Um, okay. You know, we've captured satellites before with a space shuttle and stuff for repair and things like that. And stuff like you, uh, nation state could just kind of fly up, drive up and pick it up or, <laughs> you know, do something like that. That's yeah, fi- fighters the, keepers. The likelihood of that <laughs> actually going on, it's the likelihood of that going undetected is very small, but it is a uh, stuff. Software vulnerabilities, as I said, that's the biggest thing. If you look at the most of the issues in space missions, it has derived from the software not being able to count for a specific situation or something like that. But then also, I, I love it. So in, in cybersecurity, we talk about uh, like constrained delegate, resource-based constrained delegation as an attack factor. Well, I joke that we have resource-based constrained abuse and spec effectively denial of service. So, for instance, if I can get your satellite to do something repetitively or cycle and things like that, I'm consuming your power. And if I can consume your power or force the satellite to consume power at a rate that's greater than its generation, it's it's going to go down into a steady 
uh, you know, a sleep state so that it can recharge and stuff. And if I have the ability, once it wakes back up, I just keep doing it again. It basically makes it inoperable. Then there's also anti-satellite weapons, kinetic weapons that we'll say theoretically, because nobody really wants to admit whether we have that capability in, in space sure. or anything like that. It, it, um, and would that be a mutually assured destruction thing? Like, I imagine if you go blow something up, we were talking about the sort of pinball effects. I can't imagine that's it, a good outcome it, for anybody it involved. It wouldn't be good. Like, it's not going to go over well. And yeah, so definitely definitely some some stuff. But then there's also like just the environmental, uh, you know, the harsh, the, the temperature changes, the effects of radiation on, on the system, you know, eventually, you know, you know, the combination of gravity for actually, you know, trying to decay your orbit and things like having to compensate for that. Um, lack of redundancy is a huge problem because it's like, yeah, we were able to afford to get this, this one thing up there. And we're putting <laughs> all of our hopes on that one thing. One thing um, yeah. Now, obviously the, the, the larger companies and stuff, they're, you know, fully redundant system, gold imaging. I mean, there's even intrusion detection and machine learning and AI capabilities on, uh, on satellites now and stuff. So that's that's getting a little bit different. But the last one that I won't hit on, supply chain. Talk about supply chain attacks and, and software and things like that. We look at it. But it's one of the, the things that have come out of the democratization of space is this commoditization of space hardware where I can literally go buy an ADCS module. I can go buy an EPS module. I can go buy a structure. I can go buy a solar array. I can go buy a payload board. From all these different vendors, I can bolt them together and I can launch them into space, which is awesome. Except anything in that supply chain that, you know, is vulnerable or potentially compromised. Hidden back doors. Hidden back doors, things like yeah. that. And it's not just me. It's every version of that thing that's out there. And so, you know, definitely the supply chain is, is definitely a concern. Not so much that, you know, the, the supply chain itself is going to be a problem. It's just if something should compromise that supply chain, what the ramifications could be down the road. Mm -hmm. All right. So how is this getting better? You mentioned some frameworks for space. Apparently there's a few. Some of them even look like the MITRE ATT&CK framework. I'm really curious about this. Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a couple of, oh, like a uh, ATT&CK uh, dichotomy or taxonomy frameworks out there that and, and you can use MITRE ATT&CK framework. Uh, my One of my favorites to, to kind of point people to is called Sparta. It's produced by the Aerospace Corporation. If you look it up, it looks just like MITRE and it maps to MITRE. It's just the attack vectors in the same context are in the space context, which is, is really cool. There's another one produced by uh, the ESA, the European Space Agency, called Space Shield. Um, and there's a newer one that's kind of on the scene called Trex, produced by uh, Dr. Jacob Oakley, who definitely I would classify as one of those experts in space cybersecurity kind of things. Um, but these are these are a way for us to kind of visually understand the attack chains. They do a great job of helping the space people kind of understand what these vectors are. Um, and at the same time, from cybersecurity perspective, it's like, oh, I can see the same thing. Like I'm used to seeing like, oh, this looks like a web app attack path that I did, you know, two years ago. It's just, you know, it's not a load balancer and a, and, and a middleware server and a database. It's a comm system, and, uh, onboard <laughs> computer, and yeah, the yeah. EPS. Oh, I got yeah. it. It makes sense. And so, yeah, those those things are helping. It is getting better. There are um, tremendous amounts of kind of recommendations and frameworks for, for, for securing infrastructure, for securing uh, satellite communications, uh, both from like NIST, Aerospace Corporation, the various space agencies. 
It's uh, there's also a group called CCSDS, and I'm going to it's the Consultative Committee for, Committee for Space Data Systems. They've got a tremendous number of publications on protocols and implementations and and security practices and stuff like that. So there there's a lot of data. It's just a matter of getting getting everybody on board and 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 just doing it because there there hasn't been kind of the strong arm of the law already really driving force behind yes we need to do this um unfortunately like i said the viasat probably has done more to change the game than than anything in the previous 15 years yeah it and it's great that those things look like the things we already know it's like a lot easier for people to take the knowledge that they built up working in cyber now and, and jump into this new field because it's just a translation layer you got to understand you know as cyber as a cybersecurity professional you need to learn the space terminology and as a space you know uh, engineer or you know practitioner you really you got to understand the cybersecurity terms um, and once you guys can meet in the middle then we can start having actual intelligent actionable conversations on how to improve things Okay, so for somebody listening who's super interested, I know you mentioned a bunch of learning resources, and I'll link everything we talk about in the show in the show notes, but maybe you can quickly run us through some of what kind of tools are out there for people to play around and start getting their hands dirty. Yeah, so if you're interested in this stuff, there's a, there's a couple of good ones to, to start with. One's going to be called OpenSat Kit. You can find it on GitHub. It is um, It uses, it'll, utilizes... Uh, some older versions of a ground station software, um, as well as NASA's open source core flight system, CFS, which is really cool. NASA's got multiple flight softwares that are open source, including uh, CFS and F prime. And you can definitely go play around with those. There's also NASA has what they call the NOS three. It's the NASA operating system for small satellites. It's kind of similar to, to open sat kit, and that it's a virtual environment for for being able to simulate this stuff. There is uh, one of the things that I like playing around. Right, if you like a little bit of hardware and stuff, you can actually build your own tiny GS ground station that uses LoRa to to be able to kind of track and get telemetry from satellites and stuff like that. I will give a, a quick plug. That's okay. You can cut this out if not. I'm actually um, building a workshop called BIOS. It stands for Bring Your Own Satellite. It's going to be debuting at HackspaceCon in April. And then I will be releasing basically my a modified updated version of some of these toolkits um, in, in a virtual environment so that you can uh, not only deploy like CFS and stuff, but also custom satellite implementations, uh, various like programming language, Python, things like that. Just get a little more hands-on with a little more updated. Um, and the thing with that is it's it, it's lab driven. Like it's like, hey, if you want to look at this, here's the steps to to look at this particular impact. Like if you want to show resource abuse as a result of, let's say, a relay attack, like how to how to how does that what does it look like and how do you execute it and stuff. So that'll be coming out later this year after HackspaceCon. I'm pretty excited about that. But um, yeah, it's there's there's tons and tons and tons of resources. It's just taking the time and, and going through and find there's a new one or uh, a relatively new one um cfs base camp that i that i'm playing around with it's a it's a pretty good implementation of cfs you're going to see a lot that's tied around nasa's core flight system because that is a legitimate flight proofing <laughs> software so cool okay so this is the last one i have for you it's the one i ask of everybody that comes on the show and i suspect your answer might be related to space it can be as wide or as narrow as you want do you have any predictions for the future of cybersecurity? It will get better someday. No, um, predictions for the future. I, I think 
As much as I want to believe in the goodwill of people and the desire to do the right things, people's desire to do the right thing is trumped by oftentimes organizational requirements and needs and things like that, that ultimately in order for us to become successful and better securing our organizations in the future, we're going to have to rely more on the GRC components of cybersecurity to actually be able to pull the necessary levers within our organizations to actually enact and and, and force these changes for good. Um, if we just rely on, you know, <laughs> social media and blog posts and, and news articles and stuff like that, but, oh, these bad things happen and stuff. I mean, it just doesn't have the, it doesn't carry the, the, the actual weight of, I mean, I, I am not for compliance. Uh, I think compliance is the lowest bar uh, that we can achieve. But if we make our, make compliance in, in a way that it, it actually does accomplish something, um, and it and helps us be successful at, or, you know, but we also can't do it in a means that is so complicated and biz- adverse to the business. It's like, yeah, we just, you know, <laughs> risk accepted, move on. <laughs> you know, we, we've got, we've got to meet them in the middle. We've got to, we've got to make sure that the, the recommendations that we have and that we're making can fit and work and operate within the business because the translation layer between cybersecurity and space is the exact same translation layer between cybersecurity and business. If we don't understand the business, we can't help them secure it. Um, And we have to make sure that we are supporting that mission using the tools and capabilities that we have. And I do see that, that coming uh, in the future, how long it's going to take. I don't know. Hopefully I'll be alive for it. I think that's a great observation because ultimately, like without the business, there's no budget to pay for the cybersecurity program. And there you go, right? And 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 it's easy for me to be like, as a pen tester, you need to go do this. I can do that. I have the power. People pay me for a report that tells that I tell them go do. You need to go do this. But if I don't put it in the context of why and and in some cases how that they need to do that and, and how it will support them. It does, it's what's the point. It doesn't do any good. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's very much about having, having the conversations, having an understanding uh, of where all of the players sit, where all the constraints are that the business is operating in. How, how can we come up under those and support those and lift, lift everything up instead of just dragging them down and being the perpetual. No. Can we do that? No. 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 Uh, What a great chat, Tim. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing this super interesting info with us. I know you mentioned a bunch of other resources in your talk, and I'll be sure to just like dump every link I can find in the show notes for people listening, including the link to your talk itself. Would love to chat with you again in the future as this thing unwinds and you do more research. So uh, really appreciate it, sir. Yeah, I I, I appreciate the opportunity. It's it's a blast. I, I I could talk forever and ever and ever about this stuff. Um, but it's exciting. It's, it's, I, I'm learning a lot and I, I definitely, um, I'm really excited about what the next year holds as far as, uh, research and stuff like that. Getting the whole purpose of this was to get people interested and get them accessible. And so there's, there's gonna be some cool things coming out over the next year. Right on. Yeah. And if anybody's listening, I would like to make a coalition to sponsor a satellite. <laughs> if you're listening that rings a bell with you, DM me. Who knows? Maybe we can pull this together. It'd be great. Yeah. I mean, somebody, somebody's, you know, somebody's Starlink. Uh, I mean, God, so, like, so, I mean, oh, uh, there's Dragonfly, Fireflyers, but like somebody out there has got to be listening. Like, hey, this would, I mean, it, it might be a little gimmicky. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I, I've, I've got use cases. 
Like, I just, I mean, C2 in space. Like, it was <laughs> like, you know, oh, sorry, I can't issue this command until the satellite is over. Like, yeah, yeah come on. Let's, let's like make the hacking movies real. <laughs> I mean, it'd be extremely boring, but it yeah. would be cool. Yeah, and much more useful than an F1 car. <laughs> Agreed. Okay. Take care, sir. Thanks Bye. so much. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.